Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me now to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at some selected verses from verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll start in a moment in verse 1. In two weeks, people all over the world will be celebrating Christmas. There is one place, however, where Christmas will not be celebrated. There is a headline that came out from the Washington Post uh, about a, a week or so ago, and it says this, Israel-Hamas conflict reaches Bethlehem as Christmas celebrations are canceled. You read that right. In Bethlehem, Christmas is canceled. In Bethlehem this year, there will be no Christmas lights. In Bethlehem this year, there will be no congregational worship. In Bethlehem this year, there will be no public singing of carols. It will be as if Jesus was never born in that very town, just like it was the first Christmas 2,000 years ago. You know, there are many people who celebrate Christmas, but don't exactly know why. When I was in Senegal, I went into a small restaurant. Me and my friends were the only people there. The waiter came to us. He spoke very little English, but he could say, hello, my name is Amir, I'm Muslim. In other words, don't witness to me. And yet even Amir the Muslim in that little cafe in Dakar had his restaurant decorated with all of the, uh, the, the, the Christmas decorations and he had lights and he had a Christmas tree celebrating Christmas, but he probably did not understand why. I saw where there was a, a survey from Pew Research a few years ago in which they claimed that even today, 90% of Americans say that they celebrate Christmas, and that includes 80% of non-believers. Now, we ask, what exactly are they celebrating? Some will say that they're celebrating family. Some will say that they are celebrating a day or a week off of work. Of course, we know that some people are celebrating an overweight man in a red suit who gives away free stuff. But we know what we're really celebrating and what we are celebrating is the birth of Jesus. Now, that being said, what is it about the birth of Jesus that causes us to celebrate? I've said many times, there is no verse in the Bible that orders us, that commands us to celebrate Christmas. We do not celebrate Christmas because we have to. We celebrate Christmas because when we understand just how vital, just how important the birth of Jesus is, we want to. The birth of Jesus fulfills uh, numerous Old Testament prophecies. This morning, we are going to look at one of them. Now, a lot of people don't think of 2 Samuel chapter 7 as being a Christmas 
passage. Not only is this a Christmas passage, but this passage, this prophecy is so important, it is referenced literally in the very first verse of the New Testament. It is referenced in almost the last verse of the New Testament when the angel told Mary that she would give birth to a child and call his name Jesus, the angel referenced this passage of Scripture. And when Peter stood up and preached that great bold sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this is the first passage of Scripture that he cited. And so, yes, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is very important. It's kind of a big deal. And this morning, as we read about this Christmas prophecy, we are going to see in it some of the reasons why we do celebrate Christmas, some of the reasons why we should celebrate Christmas. First of all, we celebrate because of the miracle God performed. Because of the miracle that God performed. Look with me at verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Let me give you a little bit of context here. In the chapter before the Ark of the Covenant was placed in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, you may recall, contained some very important things. Inside it contained those stone tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. Inside of that Ark was some of the manna with which God had fed his people after the Exodus. Inside of that Ark was Aaron's rod. And so this ark contained all of these things, and it was a symbol to them. It was a symbol of God's presence. It was a symbol of God's faithfulness. And it was also a symbol of the covenant that God had established with his people. And so we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and one day King David is just lying back in his lazy boy. He's just taking it easy, and suddenly it dawned upon him that he was living in a beautiful and comfortable palace. Meanwhile, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in a tent, and all of a sudden, that started to bother him greatly, and we can understand that, can't we? The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that Abraham Everywhere he went, do you remember what he did? It says he built his altar, but he pitched his tent. In other words, he spent much more time and energy and money on the place where he worshiped than he did the place where he slept. And so, yes, there should be something special about that place where we gather and pray and preach, and sing, and encounter God. So David is bothered by this, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. He decides that he is going to build a temple, and he reports this to Nathan the prophet. Now look at verse 3. 
Then Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, if you have read 2 Samuel, you know that over the course of David's life, Nathan was one of his most trusted advisors. Nathan almost always gave David good advice. But you know what? In verse 3, he did not give David good advice. He actually gave David bad advice. He said, David, do whatever is in your heart. And that may sound good on the surface, but listen, follow your heart normally is not good advice. You don't follow your heart, you lead your heart. And by the way, remember this the next time someone comes to you and asks for advice, especially if it is someone who is much younger or someone who looks up to you and respects you, you better make sure that the counsel that you are giving them is consistent with God's will and God's word. Now, let me tell you what Nathan should have said to David, and I'll back this up in Scripture in just a moment. What Nathan should have said to David was, God bless you, this is a good desire that you have, but let's pray about this. Let's spend some time really seeking the Lord about this, and first, make sure that this is God's will for you to build this temple. Now, we know that's what he should have said because of what's in verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to David saying, go and to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You know what God said to Nathan? He said, I want you to go and tell David that his building permit has been denied. God says, I don't need a temple. I never told you to build me a temple. Now, yes, years later, Solomon, David's son, builds that first temple. But this is God telling David no. He doesn't give David an explanation at this point. Later on, yes, but not right here. God simply says, no, you do not have my permission. You do not have my blessing to build a temple. And in this chapter, David does not get bitter with God. He doesn't get angry with God because God said no. In fact, David rejoices we're going to see that David rejoices, not because God told him no, but because God then promised to do something that is even better. Now, remember that the next time you pray for something, and God's answer is no. Now, we don't have time to dig into every single verse in this passage, but uh, we're going to look at some of the highlights, and I want you to notice this connection that exists between verses 5 and 11. Verses 5 and 
and 11. Now, in verse 5, God poses a question, are you going to build me a house? And then, at the end of verse 11, God says, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. God says, David, you are not able to make a house that can contain me. And years later, when his son Solomon did, in fact, build the temple, and when they dedicated the temple, he even admitted that, and he said, oh, God, the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. God says to David, you cannot build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. God says, I am going to build a house in which I can dwell. I'm going to build a house in which I will dwell. And so then the big question becomes, what is this house that God himself will build? What is this house in which God himself is able to dwell? Well, Here's where we get to Christmas. The Bible says, John 1, 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the house God was talking about. Jesus, the living word, became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, notice that word dwell in the original language. It's actually the word tabernacle, except it's a verb. John says that the word Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Why would he say it that way? It sounds so strange to us. I think it probably sounded strange back then as well. Why does John say that? Because when God made this promise to David, where was the ark? It merely, it was in a tabernacle. That ark which represented God's presence was kept in the tabernacle. The temple had not yet been built. And so this tabernacle was the place where people would come and worship God and experience God. But there was a problem and the problem was God could never fully dwell in that tabernacle. And therefore, God built a tabernacle in which he could dwell. The creator, the infinite God, whom the universe cannot contain, he was housed in human flesh. He was housed in a mother's womb. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him dwells, there's that word again, that word tabernacle, for in him tabernacles all the fullness of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God could not fully dwell in a tabernacle that man made, so God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus, and he becomes the tabernacle 
In the Old Testament, God met man in a tabernacle of linen. In the New Testament, he meets us in that tabernacle of flesh. And thus, Jesus is the one that we go to in order to see God, in order to hear God. He is the one who reveals God to us, who God is and what God is like and how God acts and what God thinks and what God says. He is the reason why we can know God and know him personally. And it's because Jesus tabernacled in human flesh because he was both fully God and fully man. He is able to reconcile God and man. It is because he was fully man that he can stand in the place of sinful man before God because he was also fully God He could satisfy the demands of God's law when he laid down his life on the cross for us, when he paid the ultimate price. And ladies and gentlemen, this is why we celebrate Christmas, because the birth of Jesus means God coming down from heaven to earth to do for us what we could never do for him. This miracle of miracles. We celebrate Christmas because of the miracle God performed And we celebrate Christmas because of the promise God kept. Because of the promise God kept. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. God said to David, David, one day you're going to die. Nothing new there. But God said, your seed will come after you. God's going to give David a son. Now, wait a second. Someone will say, according to 2 Samuel chapter 3, David already had several sons. God's not talking about those sons. He is talking about a son who has yet to be born. Now, God is going to give David a son. His name will be Solomon. Solomon comes along, and God says, I'm going to establish his kingdom. In other words, it's going to last. How long does his kingdom last? Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here is where we begin to see that God is talking about Solomon, but he is also talking about something much bigger than Solomon, and he's talking about someone much greater than Solomon. And to understand this passage, you need to understand that what we have here is called a dual prophecy. This is a common thing that we see in the Old Testament, a dual prophecy. In other words, There is a prophecy that God gives us in the Scripture, and that prophecy has both a near fulfillment, but also a distant fulfillment. There is a prophecy that is fulfilled sooner, and part of that prophecy is fulfilled much later. In the near future, David will have a son named Solomon, Solomon will build that first physical temple, but it doesn't take us long to see that there is just no way that Solomon could possibly fulfill 
every part of this prophecy. Why not? Because he lived, and then he died. The nation of Israel was torn in two between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You see, it is this way with every king. David was king. He died, and his reign ended. And Solomon was king. He died, and his reign ended. But God says to David, a king is coming whose kingdom will not end. A king is coming who will reign forever. That clearly was not David. That clearly was not Solomon. And so who is this king who reigns forever? His name is what? Jesus. In fact, when the angel told Mary, you will have a son and call his name Jesus, do you remember what follows? And his kingdom will have no end. That's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That is Gabriel saying to Mary that this king who will be born is the king that God promised, the king whose kingdom shall never end. You see, all of this time, for thousands of years, the people had been waiting and the people had been watching for that Messiah that God promised, that Savior that God promised to send into the world to do something to save us from sin and death. In fact, that promise began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You remember after that very first sin came into the world, you remember what God said? God said one day the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman? In other words, this is going to be a miraculous birth. This will be a birth in which no human father is involved. Later on in history, God said to Abraham, one day through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And so now it, it narrows down a little bit. It gets a little bit more specific. Now we know that this Savior, this Messiah, will be a descendant of Abraham. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God narrows it down even more. And God says to David that one day this Savior, this King, this Messiah, he will be a descendant of David, which is why Matthew 1.1 calls Jesus the son of David. This is one of the things the Bible tells us that we are supposed to look for to be able to identify the Messiah, the Savior, when he comes. And let me just say, by the way, one of the reasons why we believe that Jesus is the Messiah is because he could actually document that he was a son of David, thus the point of the genealogy that you have in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. But you know what? The tribes of Israel have been lost today. Today, in the year 2023, it's impossible for someone to prove, to document that they are a son of David, that they actually meet this requirement. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us if you're looking for the Messiah, don't look to the future. Look to the past. Look 2,000 years ago because he's already come. And it's not an accident that God is making this promise to David because in so many ways, David is like a foreshadow of Christ. David was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. David was 
overlooked. Jesus was overlooked. David was a shepherd. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. David saved the people from their enemies. Jesus came to save us from the enemies of sin and death. Look at the first part of verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Again, we see this dual prophecy playing out in this verse. Now, if the Messiah is coming from David's lineage and one day a child will be born who has God as his father, what does that mean? I believe that means a miraculous birth. That means a a virgin birth. And this is why the author of Hebrews quotes verse 14 and tells us that God the Father is speaking to God the Son. But look at the second part of verse 14. If he commits iniquity, I will chastise him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now, a lot of people ask about this statement, and there are various interpretations But let me just remind you, God is talking about a lineage that leads up to and culminates in Christ. Jesus never committed iniquity, but Solomon sure did. And the kings after him sure did. But when they did, God remembered his promise and God did not abandon them. God did not abolish their kingdom like he did with King Saul. Why not? Because God made a promise to David and God is a promise-keeping God. As we read through 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see in this passage some parts of the prophecy that have already been fulfilled, and we see some parts that have not yet been fulfilled. But listen, it is because of the promises that God already fulfilled that we can trust him to keep the parts that have not yet been fulfilled. We celebrate Christmas because of this promise that God kept. And it's interesting, David's response to all of this, we get to verse 18, and I'm not going to read all of that, but when we get to verse 18, David just comes before the Lord, and he begins to pray and sing and worship. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful and one of the most simple and one of the most sincere prayers that you will find anywhere in the Word of God. I'm not going to read every word, but David says, who am I? What can I say to you? God, there's none like you. There's no God besides you. Let your name be magnified forever. He says, you are God. Your words are true. And David just begins rejoicing. But listen, David is rejoicing because of the promise God made. Now, do you see where I'm going with this? If David rejoiced, Because of the promise God had made, how much more should we rejoice because of the promise God kept? Christmas means that we can celebrate regardless of what trials we are going through and regardless of what loss we are mourning, regardless of what pain we are enduring, because God is a promise-keeping God, and he proved that at Bethlehem's manger. We celebrate because of the miracle God performed. We celebrate because of the promise God kept. And at Christmas, we celebrate, and we should celebrate, because of the restoration God will bring about. Because of the restoration God will bring about. Now look at verse 8. Now therefore, 
Thus says, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. God says, David, do you remember? Do you remember that time when you were just a shepherd boy and that's it? And there... I took you, and I turned you into a king. And David, do you remember all the enemies that you had to fight? How again and again I delivered you from their hands, and I gave you rest. My, oh my. You talk about enemies. David had to fight so many enemies. We think about that story of David and Goliath. That's just the beginning. Before Goliath, there was a lion. Before Goliath... Uh, there was a bear. David had to fight the Philistines. He had to fight the Edomites. He had to fight the Ammonites. You think you have enemies? <laughs> David, he had enemies. And here's the point. God says to David, just as I gave you rest from all of your enemies, one day through this child, through this Son of David, who will be born, God says, I'm going to do the same for my people. One day, through this child, through the son of David, every enemy will be put down, and one day, my people won't have to roam anymore, and one day there won't be any more oppression, and one day this baby who will be born, he will fix every wrong, and he will establish justice once and for all. And can I just remind you that this promise that God made to David, it applies to you. It applies to me. We're included in this because listen to this. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Oh, this promise God made to Abraham and yes, the promise God made to David, this applies to you and this applies to me and this applies to everyone in Christ and when you read about what God says he's going to do through the coming of this child, the son of David, man, isn't this what you long for? This is what I long for deep down in my heart. Isn't this what everybody longs for? God says, one day I will do it through this Savior who will be a son of David. And sure enough, 2,000 years ago, he came. He was born. He lived a perfect life. He suffered and he died for our sins and he rose again. But one day he is coming again and that same Jesus will make all things 
right. David put his faith in the Messiah who was to come. David based his life on this promise that one day God would send him and he would come. And so what is God calling us to do? To put our faith in this Savior who was born of a virgin, who lived, who died on the cross, who rose from the grave and is coming again. Trust in him. Base your life on him. Receive him and then, just like David, celebrate. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you, O oh God, when we think about the miracle of miracles that was performed when you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, when the word became flesh, and he becomes that tabernacle so that we can know you and know you personally. Thank you, O oh God, for making that possible for us through Christ. And we thank you, O oh God, for keeping that promise that one day a son of David would be born, whose kingdom will never end, whose throne is established forever, who one day will come again and defeat every enemy and put off every foe and bring rest for God's people and fix every wrong. God, we long for that because this world is broken. It's messed up. We long for Jesus to come again and do all of these things that you said he will one day do. But God, until then, you've given us this time and you've given us this opportunity to really decide how we will respond and what we will do with Jesus. We thank you, oh God, for this precious, precious gift. So many of us, Lord, will get and, and give gifts this Christmas season, but Father, there's no gift that's greater than this one. And I pray that everyone here in this room today will, in fact, receive this gift of eternal life through knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, would you speak to us now and just show us all how we should respond to everything that we've read and heard and learned and that you would be glorified by the way we respond to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, head still bowed and eyes still closed for just a moment. I have to ask that question. The Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 6, 23, the gift of God. It is a gift. And we know what to do when someone offers us a gift. We can either accept that gift or we can reject it. What we can't do is pay for it or earn it, and you certainly could never deserve it. But when someone offers you a gift, you know you can accept it or you can reject it. Many of you will get Christmas gifts. Many of you will give Christmas gifts to others. What about this gift? The gift of eternal life is Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is a gift. Heaven is a gift. Salvation is a gift. So what are you going to do with it? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'll simply call upon him, in other words, asking him to be Lord of your life, following him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so is there anybody that's here today that would say, I'm at that crossroads of faith 
and that is exactly the step that I need to take. You've never done that before, but you would say, I need to receive this gift. I want to receive this gift this morning by simply calling on Jesus and saying, Jesus, from this point forward, I will follow you. From this point forward, uh, you are Lord of my life. You're in control. I give you control of all that I am and all that I have. Anybody that would say, Pastor, that's me. That's exactly what I need to do and what I want to do even right now, this day, December the 10th, 2023, can be your born-again moment. Anybody that would say, Pastor, that's where I'm at, and that's the step I'm ready to take. Just by lifting up a hand so I can see and so I can know that's where I am, and that's the step that I'm ready to take. If you're watching online, I can't see you raise your hand, but please let us know. Please send us a text message to this number that uh, you see on the screen, and let us know if Today, you are following Christ as your Lord for the first time. If today, you want just more information about what it means to be a Christian, and hey, if you're here today in this room and uh, you still have questions or want to talk about this, I will plant myself down here at the front of the service after it's over, and not just to greet people, uh, that's great, but really uh, to meet with you and minister to you and answer any questions you may have, to pray with you, and so please do not hesitate to come and say, uh, I'm that person, or today, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Amen. It's been so good to be in the Lord's house with you today, and I'm looking forward to these next couple of weeks and going even further, talking about the birth of Jesus and what that means to us and why we are celebrating.